Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The spread of a deadly new coronavirus is being closely followed by global health officials and the public. So far, around 24,000 cases have been confirmed worldwide with almost 500 deaths. 11 cases as of our taping on Wednesday in the U.S. And it is not likely to go away anytime soon. The coronavirus is causing concern the world over. Overnight, new confirmed cases of the coronavirus in America. Hundreds of Americans evacuated from the epicenter of China's coronavirus outbreak. We need to be clear. We're basically at a pandemic now. Along with the headlines of quarantines, canceled flights and travel bans comes another threat, misinformation going viral. Jasmine Aguilera reported on how public health officials are working with social media networks to prevent the proliferation of rumors related to the virus. And she's joining us now from New York City. Jasmine, welcome. Thank you. Also with us, Dr. Mary Beth Sexton. She's assistant professor at the Division for Infectious Diseases here at Emory University. Mary Beth, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So for you, what do you and your colleagues do to protect the public when something like this happens? So what we really try to do is twofold. One is that in collaboration with our partners in public health, we try to make sure that there's accurate information out there in the public about who should be concerned, what should you do to protect yourself, what should you do if you think you may be ill. And the second is to make sure that within the healthcare facilities where we work, we have good mechanisms in place to capture cases immediately so that we don't have other people exposed and that we keep our patients and our healthcare workers safe. I'm going to zero in on that first case there, making sure people have accurate information. Jasmine, you reported on the novel coronavirus and social media responses, a lot of misinformation floating around there. So, so for example, if I Googled coronavirus, what kind of things might I find? Right. Well, the interesting thing there is that now there is more collaboration, it seems, happening between agencies like the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and companies like Twitter, for example. So now if you were to search coronavirus in Twitter, the first thing that would pop up is actually a notice from the CDC. CDC has been pushing as much myth-busting information as possible. The the more you scroll, the more that you search through different platforms, though, that information might change. So, for example, uh, Facebook, the way it works is so dramatically different from Twitter. You know, sometimes in your feed, you may just see something that is shared by another person that might be inaccurate. And in that case, Facebook will have flagged that information as inaccurate and will be pushing Uh, underneath that post something that is more accurate, something from the CDC or articles that have been vetted by the Associated Press, for example, um, to clarify what it actually does and how that post is false. What are some of the myths that have been propagated so far? We've seen, for example, uh, people spreading information that if you rinse your mouth out with saline, that you can prevent the virus spread, which is inaccurate. Um, We've seen some people share that there is actually a vaccine out there for coronavirus, which is not true as well. Those are just a few examples. Some are more dangerous than others. Uh, Some can spread information that can be more vitriolic or racist towards other people. Uh, We've seen the ramifications of that happening. Well, let let me get back to that in a minute. But I want to first ask you, Dr. Sexton, you know, any new challenges in the social media age in the dissemination of false information? 
I think so. I think there are a couple of things that contribute both to misinformation and to some of the level of panic we see with a new disease like this. One is having a real 24-7 news cycle that can focus on this and hammer this message repeatedly to people who are watching. And the other is all of these different social media platforms that are so disseminated and, although they're really trying now, can be unregulated. It allows us in the healthcare field to try to get our accurate message out there and to reach a lot of people we might not otherwise be able to get that message to. But the counter to that is that so can anyone else. Right, of course. Let's look at how this compares to reporting on previous epidemics. We have online communication now that allows for better documentation and real-time widespread awareness about where the coronavirus is showing up. But some have observed these higher numbers of reported cases could make the coronavirus outbreak look worse than outbreaks in the past. How does that change perception of what's going on? I think that part of the problem is that you can get up-to-the-minute accurate information out there, and that's very helpful to public health professionals, but it's not necessarily filtered or explained for the general public. And so I think that sometimes, because it's not focused on what's most important, that that may look worse to someone. So if you're clicking refresh on the numbers of cases, and that looks like you're having this rapid increase, and that's not necessarily filtered by the fact that many of these cases are mild. Some of them may be being identified after the fact because there is improvements in the diagnostic testing available. And so some of that information doesn't always coincide with the raw data that's out there. So I think making sure that also out there for public consumption is the information about the fact that in the United States right now, influenza is the threat and not coronavirus. Well, I was reading that this morning. 42 people in Georgia have died of influenza this season. So is there a disproportionate sense of panic about the threat that's out there in the universe and could come to the U.S. compared to the one that's right here amongst us? I think so in the United States, because with that number of deaths in Georgia, that means we've had almost four times as many deaths in Georgia from flu as there are cases of coronavirus in the entire country. Mm. My guests are Dr. Mary Beth Sexton, Assistant Professor for the Division of Infectious Disease at Emory University, and Jasmine Aguilera. She's a reporter at Time. We're talking about the misinformation and disinformation and what is the factual information on the coronavirus. Well, Jasmine, I want to pick up on that, something that you mentioned earlier that is related to this, the implications of this rush to judgment coverage on the coronavirus. One researcher that you spoke to, Monica Shock Spana, described xenophobia as a pre-existing condition when it comes to disease outbreaks like this one. First, what does she mean? Right. When she says pre-existing conditions, what she means is that we already have these stereotypes in our heads. We already see the world through a certain lens. And when there's public panic, sometimes our filters come down. We act out of fear or act irrationally, and eventually stereotypes come out. Racism comes out uh, full-fledged without thinking of the implications of what we're saying, without thinking about the harms that this may cause. So when we see a group of students from China quarantined on a college campus, for example, or plane loads of people from a trip to China being quarantined, is that the overlay that we're talking about? Well, what we mean more so is the day-to-day -day lives of people of Asian descent, for example. Um, 
when a person is on the subway and someone avoids sitting next to them, or if a person of Asian descent coughs and someone immediately calls them out for coronavirus fear. I mean, we've seen ex- people noting examples like that on social media already. An entire movement has started to spring up in France. The hashtag I am not a virus um, movement has been pretty full swing because of incidents like this. People just trying to live their day-to-day lives in a place that may not be at high risk uh, for coronavirus infection, but are still subject to this racism and xenophobia because people are acting irrationally about their fears of the virus. Stepping back, Mary Beth, taking a historical view of previous epidemics like Ebola out of Central and Western Africa, Zika in East Africa and South America, or MERS out of the Middle East, How does where a disease originate affect the public reaction to it? I think that a couple of things happen. I think one is that whenever you have a disease that's new, just that novel factor scares people because it's something that they don't necessarily know a lot about. Then I think if you add to it that disease originating in a foreign country that people also may not be familiar with, may never have been there, may never have met anyone who's from there, it compounds that sense that this is somehow new or foreign or scary, and it leads to panic. I think on top of that, with Ebola, I think some of the panic around that was the mortality rate. Mm -hmm. Some of the panic was the sensationalized descriptions of the symptoms. And some of it was that it was originating in West Africa, and there was a component of racism to some of the reaction. I know that's something that your colleagues at Emory University worked with directly. Jasmine, you've been reflecting on the way that American media organizations are reporting on the outbreak from an American perspective. Anything you can share with us about where that's brought you, that reflection? Right. I've, it's definitely been a lot of soul-searching, I feel, for us, especially in a newsroom environment. I mean, we talk about lack of diversity in newsrooms throughout the country. And when we're talking about a global pandemic or a global emergency like coronavirus, a lot of times, especially if we're looking at it through an American lens for an American audience, we risk othering another group and could enable some of the fear that people are seeing now spread online. For example, talking to my colleague who is from Taiwan, she brought up a very good point that we in American media may not even be utilizing the right resources, talking to people who are on the ground, who we assume may not know English, for example, which is uh, something that I've experienced uh, just being Hispanic and being of, of Mexican descent, you know, American reporters not realizing there's a huge segment of the population who speak English. It does not mean that you don't have to extend a hand, just talk to people who are actually on the ground, who are experiencing it themselves, and and not leave out their worldview, their perspective in the story, because we then risk further spreading fear that is unnecessary in our own culture. Mary Beth, how about for you, from a public health perspective, what would improve the way coverage and information has been shared so far? I think it's really just making sure that we focus on what's most critical for people to know and that we get people out there talking about what we are doing Because I think that what makes sense in a situation like this where you do have an outbreak that originated in China, it's perfectly reasonable to ask anyone of any ethnic or racial background who's been in China in the last two weeks to monitor for symptoms and to call their healthcare professional if they have a fever or a cough. It is not reasonable to move away from people who you think look Chinese in the street. And so I think emphasizing that we don't give in to that kind of xenophobia and that we stay very evidence-based about what our interventions are. 
Dr. Mary Beth Sexton, she's assistant professor for the Division of Infectious Disease at Emory University. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. And Jasmine Aguilera, reporter for Time covering the new coronavirus. Thank you. Thank you as well. Coming up with the Oscar nominations dominated by men in key categories, some women in Hollywood are calling for a revolution. I'm Virginia Prescott. Stay with us for that and more of On Second Thought. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. The Oscars So White hashtag gained momentum in 2016. Well, this year, it's Oscars So Male. Despite a number of popular films made by women, none were nominated for a Best Director Academy Award this year. Only five women have been nominated in the category in 92 years. In a TED Talk that went viral, Naomi McDougall-Jones proposed that nothing short of a revolution would break the predominantly male hold on power in the film industry. So it is beginning to occur to me that waiting for Hollywood to grow a conscience may not actually be a winning strategy. The popularity of that talk led the Atlanta-based author, actress, director, and activist to dive into studies, articles, and interviews with women in the business. The resulting book, The Wrong Kind of Women, Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood, is out this week. And she joins us in the studio with more. Naomi McDougall-Jones, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Nothing short of a revolution, huh? No, I mean, I think there's a there's been a feeling about this movement that if we sort of like just give the right speech or like have the right data, that people will that the people in power will just turn over that power. And I don't think there's anything in history to suggest that when people have power, they give it over easily. But you do talk about history to put the conversation now into context in a broader way. The story really begins in the early 1900s when women were a majority in the film industry. What happened? So this is a piece of history that has been largely lost and written out, which is that, as you say, women, they were the majority of screenwriters during the silent film era. And at the beginning of the film industry, people thought it was kind of an eccentric hobby. Nobody really expected it to turn into an industry or a money-making venture. And then when talkies came in, um, Wall Street sniffed the smell of money, and they quite literally said, look, we'll invest in this industry, but you've got to get the women out. So for, then by 1945, they were really gone. And from 1945 until 1985, women directed less than one half of 1% of all studio films and TV shows. That is stunning. And you were the wrong kind of woman, uh, <laughs> as something you heard during auditions fresh out of acting school. What, what did you think you had to do to be the right kind? Oh, I got a lot of advice. Um, if I could dye my hair blonde, if I could dye my hair brown, if I could get use the right sort of hair product that would make it less frizzy, if I could lose 10 pounds, if I could whiten my teeth, if I could seem just a little bit less intelligent, I got a, a wide array of advice to try to squeeze myself into a box that would make me the right kind of woman. Well, so we should point out that you made that TED Talk in 2016, but it really went viral after the Harvey Weinstein scandal broke in October 2017. So tell me a little bit about your message then, and really, how has it changed, especially since you've been digging into the numbers for this book? Yeah, well, so this was a topic I'd been speaking about publicly since about 2013. And then, of course, Weinstein happened and this huge public moment happened and so many articles have been written and conversations have happened and panels and speeches. And I think where we find ourselves now is at this danger point because we have had two years of this conversation and it feels as though things have changed. And there's been so many words spilled over this that it feels like things must be different now. And the data is really not pointing to that. Um, there, we've seen a couple brief upticks in, in women directors or on-screen representation, but if we look at this in the historical context, everything suggests that that's going to be a brief uptick followed by 
um, a slide back. Well, I'm wondering about that now. With the we're looking at the Harvey Weinstein trial going on right now, and it looks like there may be a settlement. So, is the outrage gone, or is that just a specific case? What do you think? I think the outrage is ebbing. I mean, I think people are starting to look away, and again. Because the work of change is so much harder than just giving a speech, it sort of feels easier to just turn away. And of course, Hollywood can feel like this space that's really far away from our lives and glittery people and like who cares if whoever can get a job or can't get a job. But we consume more media now than we ever have before. And the U.S. is exporting more films and television shows globally than we ever have before. And those stories are shaping our culture and our behaviors in ways that truly go out and affect the rest of the issues that we're facing. And and if you consider that 90 to 95 percent of all of the films that you've ever seen were directed by white men who have a valid perspective, but reasonably they're 30 percent of the U.S. population, which means that 70 percent of us, our voices and perspectives and stories have just been virtually absent from this enormous stream of media that we've all been consuming and that has been shaping quite literally our neural pathways. I want to get to that in a minute, but I want to say that I'm speaking with writer, actor, and producer Naomi McDougall-Jones, now also an author. She's a vocal proponent for gender parody in Hollywood, and her book, The Wrong Kind of Women, came out earlier this week. Tell me a little bit about that, because you did dig into a lot of data about how we are actually influenced by the things that we see, you know, convincing people that this problem actually does affect them. Yeah. So just to give a couple brief examples, the year that Hunger Games and Brave came out, Um, female participation in archery went up 105%. (laughs) To pull another more consequential example, there's now a well-established trend and problem that lawyers face now that so many people watch Law & Order, which is that they expect, the jurors now expect some final, last-minute, you know, incontrovertible piece of evidence to come out in this dramatic moment like it does on TV shows. Within an hour. Within an hour, (laughs) which, of course, doesn't happen in real life. And so jurors are now consistently returning more innocent verdicts than they should because of television. That is absolutely stunning. And I want to go back to this Weinstein case because there were a-list actors who came out and, and, and went on the record about sexual harassment and uh, sexual violence, even in many cases. But there are other women who have been talking and going on the record about job inequity. Here's Kate Blanchett accepting the Oscar for Blue Jasmine in, at the 2014 Academy Awards. Those of us in the industry who are still foolishly clinging to the idea that uh, that female films with women at the centre are niche uh, experiences, they are not. Audiences want to see them, and in fact, they earn money. So... (laughs) The world is round, people! Well, there has been this argument that films with complex female roles at the centre don't make money, do they? Yes, they do. And this is what is so insane about this topic is that to this day, people will tell you that executives will tell you that in meetings. Well, we really would love this to make this film, but we can't because it's not going to make any money. Well, all of the data shows that dollar for dollar films both by and about women make more money at the box office. They're just not looking. They're missing this huge financial opportunity that, are, that exists. And again, 70 percent of the population whose stories are not being represented by film and television. So you mean to tell me that, you know, Black Panther, The Avengers, all these Marvel reboots, those are not making as much money as female films? 
dollar for dollar spent. The amount of money a film makes is directly correlated to how much money is put into it, both in terms of budget and marketing dollars. But if you look at ROI, just dollar for dollar spent, films by women are making more money. All right. So you're talking, Naomi, about a kind of revolution, complete disruption of the way that the film industry works now and expanding the limited role of women and, and women's voices. How do you move from discussion and awareness, which is what you've been working on, into action? How does that change? Well, I have an entire chapter in the book <laughs> that uh, basically goes through every type of person inside and outside of the industry and says, here are the action steps that you can take. But the quick answer is audiences hold the ultimate power. Where you choose to put your eyeballs, where you choose to put your dollars, that is the thing that will ultimately drive the market. So seek out the stories that you want to see. Think about what stories are shaping your neural pathways and what stories you want to be shaping your neural pathways and your children's neural pathways. And then seek out those stories and spend your dollars to see them. Um, and the exciting thing is that because of the internet and because of the decreased cost of film production, we can now make our stories and we're seeing this revolution happen at the fringes right now where women and people of color and folks with disabilities and all these stories that have been historically just frozen out of the industry are now happening with lower budgets and indie film and web series and docu-series and on the fringes so you can find them on the internet and help drive that revolution. Obviously, it's a tough battle. I'm, I was reading about a lot of men wouldn't even go see Little Women just because women was in the title. So how about within the industry? How can people within the industry actually start making those changes instead of just talking about how woke they are? Well, for them, it's actually really easy. You just hire women. There's actually an amazing example in recent history. John Landgraf, who's the head of the network FX, in 2015, the company was publicly called out for having the least diverse roster of directors on television. 88% of their directors were white men. And he said, you know what? That's not okay. And instead of saying, oh, we'd love to hire women, but we can't find any, or coming up with this roster of excuses that we hear all the time, he just said, no excuses, Find the women, hire the women, do it. And by 2018, only 51% of their directors were white and male. Mm. And so that's an example. That's why I don't believe the studios when they say, well, we'd love to, but we can't, or like, we just can't figure it out. Just no excuses, figure it out. Um, Anna Cerner, who's the head of the Swedish Film Institute, when I interviewed her for my book, she said, you know, if a major company or corporation were looking to move offices, move office space, they would hire a consultant to find like the maximum best new office space they could possibly have. Well, there are consultants who can help you hire women. Like if you really can't figure it out internally, if it's that confusing to you, hire a consultant to help you figure it out. You've been chipping away in your own way at these forces that keep women from reaching their full potential in Hollywood, seeing some results, but perhaps not as quickly or sweepingly as you'd like. How do you keep from becoming hopeless or even bitter about it? It's hard. And I see a lot of um, women who have been fighting longer than me, decades longer than me. I see that pain in them, that anger and that, that bitterness growing. And I think the important thing is to stay positive and stay excited this isn't a punitive action we're trying to take. We're not trying to punish anybody by showing them women's stories. What we're saying is, hey, how much more exciting would the content be if we're getting to see these stories from women and people of color and other folks that we've never seen before? And staying 
thinking about that exciting, verdant field that we are just missing keeps me positive. And also meeting young filmmakers, young female filmmakers who are so excited to tell their stories and find ways to do it. That keeps me positive, too. Naomi McDougall-Jones, Atlanta-based actor, writer, producer, director, and now author of The Wrong Kind of Women, Inside Our Revolution to Dismantle the Gods of Hollywood. You can find more on the book at gpbnews.org. Coming up, a conversation with the Mississippi-based investigative reporter who helped convict Klansmen who thought they got away with murder during the civil rights era. But before that, a little sound from something on our radar this week. Heartbeat, Gospel Brubeck and the Rhythms of the City is running at the Atlanta Ballet until February 15th. Their performance is in three movements. Elemental Brubeck is choreographed by the great Lar Lubavitch to music by Dave Brubeck, which we're listening to now. Couplet is the jazz-inflected bustle of the city. And finally, Sunrise Divine, featuring arrangements of traditional gospel tunes and originals by Dr. Kevin Johnson and performed by members of the Spelman College Glee Club and Lydia Pace of Atlanta's own gospel singers, the Anointed Pace Sisters. Movement is choreographed by Dwight Roden. You can get jazzed up, citified, and sanctified, all in one sitting. Details at gbbnews.org. Stay with us for the Mississippi-based investigative reporter who helped convict Klansmen who thought they got away with murder during the civil rights era. I'm Virginia Prescott. That's when On Second Thought continues. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. On June 12th of 1963, President John Kennedy delivered his report to the American people on civil rights. I want to pay tribute to those citizens north and south who've been working in their communities to make life better for all. They are acting not out of sense of legal duty, but out of a sense of human decency. Like our soldiers and sailors in all parts of the world, they are meeting freedom's challenge on the firing line. And I salute them for their honor and their courage. Just hours after Kennedy's nationally televised speech, NAACP Field Secretary Medgar Evers was shot in the driveway of his Jackson, Mississippi home. He was pronounced dead an hour later. Accused killer Byron Della Beckwith was twice tried by all-white juries that deadlocked. Nearly 30 years later, a reporter for Jackson's Clarion-Ledger newspaper unearthed documents and holes in the defense that led to retrying and convicting the white supremacist of Evers' murder. And that is just one of four Klansmen that Jerry Mitchell helped put behind bars decades after they got away with murder. Details of his dogged investigative reporting and resulting trials read like a thriller in his new book. It's called Race Against Time. A reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. And Jerry Mitchell is going to be talking about it at the Carter Presidential Library tonight. He's joining us now from Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Jerry Mitchell, thanks for your time. 
Thank you. Good to be with you, Virginia. So you were reporting on court for the Clarion Ledger when you got assigned to cover the press preview of this 1988 film, Mississippi Burning. Here's just a clip from the film. It's about the investigation of the 1964 murder of civil rights workers James Cheney, Mickey Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman in Neshoba County, Mississippi. Well, hell. Looks like we got some company. Some Hoover boys come down to visit. How you doing? Good. I'm Sheriff Stuckey. Rupert Anderson. Rupert? Uh-huh. You down here to help us solve our legal problems? No, uh, it's just a missing person case. Hmm. Well, you think it might be a little more serious than missing persons? I don't think so, boy. So, you know, you learned there that, well, that's not exactly how it went. No. <laughs> but, so what were some of the things that opened your eyes to the, the truth of this situation? Well, I happened to see the movie with two FBI agents who investigated that case, as well as the journalist who covered the case. I was literally sitting by an FBI agent who kept, like, his narration uh, kind of accompanied the movie. He kept saying, oh, that's fiction. or And then there would be times when he said, oh, that really happened, uh, such as where there's a scene in the film where a young African-American it's literally the FBI hauls him around, puts a box over his head so he can't be identified, but so he can look out. Um, I guess what really struck me was there were more than 20 Klansmen involved in killing these three young men, Cheney Goodman and Schwerner, and no one was ever prosecuted for murder. That I could not wrap my head around. I, I couldn't figure that out. So that was it was all eye-opening to me and inspired me made me angry, to be honest, and really wanted to continue to look at that case and wound up, of course, leading me to other cases. May that set you on your path that continues to this day. That case and the others that are covered in this book, you reveal the power of the Klan in Mississippi and also in Alabama, as it happens in the 50s and 60s. What did you learn about that brutal history and how it was regarded when you arrived there in Mississippi in the mid-80s? Well, uh, you know, the Klan by that point had kind of lost its political clout that it had. Uh, it was a very powerful political organization in Mississippi in the 1960s. I mean, politicians would join it. Um, there were even judges and others who would secretly join. You know, those are the kind of things that were that were happening. By the time, like I said, it kind of faded by then. But white supremacy continues and unfortunately continues to this day and seems to be gathering strength. Uh, white national, There's been a real rise in white nationalism and obviously violence that we've seen that seems that, that basically has been inspired by that. Well, you, you write about New South pride and Old South prejudices That's right. <laughs> running alongside. But the book reads like a thriller. I mean, it's already been compared to John Grisham novels by critics. Well, that's, a, that's a high compliment. <laughs> well, there is. There's much about the art of investigative reporting. Like, yes. You, you discover documents that revealed that the state of Mississippi was involved yeah. in these cases. First, how did yeah. you discover that? Well, I don't know if you're like me, but if someone tells me I can't have something, I want it like a million times worse. <laughs> a great reporter. So there was something in Mississippi called the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, which was like a state segregationist spy agency, which was headed by the governor, by the way, plus all these other top state leaders. And so I found out the Mississippi legislature had done away with that agency in 1977. But all those spy records, more than 132,000 pages of spy files were all sealed for 50 years. So when I found that out, I thought, eh, 
there's got to be something in there. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't seal them for 50 years. So I began to develop sources and began to leak me the files. And what they showed was at the same time, the state of Mississippi was prosecuting Byron D. Beckwith uh, for murdering Meg Rivers, this other arm of the state. The Sovereignty Commission was secretly assisting defense, trying to get Beckwith acquitted, and nobody knew that. Mm. It's just an amazing story. Uh, you, you referred to them, or one of your colleagues did, as our Pentagon Papers, revealing yeah, right. how deeply the state was involved with spying on citizens like Medgar Evers, like Mickey Schwerner and his wife, what were they hoping to find, do you think? I mean, trying to discredit. You know, they really believed that we're all communist or the like, and they were doing everything they could to discredit uh, the movement. They actually found some information uh, that supposedly linked Martin Luther King to communism, and 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 this was their genius idea. They go, oh. We'll get this black newspaper to run the story, and then we'll get the Clarion Ledger to pick it up, and that's that's what that's what happened. So, and so they, your paper, the Clarion Ledger, oh, was yeah, actually yeah, in we, cahoots. It was awful racist paper in those days. Absolutely. Well, there's a degree of old gumshoe-style investigative reporting yeah. here. There's a fantastic story about when you were working on the uh, investigation about the the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist yes. Church. And the defendant, who was still roaming free, says, well, I wasn't there building a bomb that Saturday night. I was watching wrestling on television. Where did, right. you, where did you go with that? Well, you know, one of the first rules in journalism, and this is way, the way we say it in the South, is uh, even if your mama tells you she loves you, check it out. So, uh, <laughs> so, so I did. I mean, I got back to the newsroom. He told me that. And I got back to the newsroom and talked to our librarian, Susan Garcia, and just said, you know, check with the Birmingham News and see what was on TV that night. Because they used to run when I remembered that from when I was a kid, like mm -hmm. the entire TV schedule in these very small boxes in the newspaper. Right. All three channels. All three channels. And, and, they, and they only had two, as it turned out at the time. And uh, so the the next day, I heard back from the library, and there there was no wrestling. It just it had been wrestling on for years, so it just it was a concocted alibi, uh, an alibi concocted later. So well, uh, and these things actually end up being used in trial. They uh, do your work. Yeah. So you played a, a deep role in reviving the Medgar Evers murder case. Records from that 63, 64 trials were incomplete, no transcripts, no murder right. weapon, other evidence long destroyed. But you found the phone number of the accused killer, Byron de la Beckwith, talked on the phone once and then went to visit him at his home in Signal Mountain, Tennessee. Can you just tell me about, you know, those impressions of this man uh, that you spoke oh, with on the phone? Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, I I remember... You know, I went I went to go visit him. Absolutely the most racist person I ever spent serious time with. Mm. And this was kind of my introduction to all this, uh, this world. And um, he taught me a lot about that world in a way. It was really kind of a strange thing. But he would, he, you know, it was all inward this, inward that. Uh, and, and then he... Um, and then he started in on the other races. And he was very anti-Semitic. Uh, he was a part of... This belief system is called Christian identity, mm -hmm. and it's really this kind of white supremacist religion that claims the Bible supports its racist, you know, views and things like that. And which I found particularly appalling as a person of faith. But anyway, we spent about six hours together, and it was by this time it was getting dark, 
and I thought it was probably a good time to go. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you feel at all? You know, talking to the sky uh, uh, in a I remote was, part of oh, Tennessee. Yeah, it was it was creepy. And by the way, you hadn't told anyone you were going. <laughs> no, I told thing. my uh, yeah, I, I didn't tell my bosses, but I told my wife, and she was none too happy. She was eight months pregnant at the time, so she was. Uh, more than a little nervous about me going. In fact, she told me before I left, uh, if you go, I'll never forgive you. So, <laughs> so I left. And, uh, <laughs> um, and so I went and, and I talked to Beck with, and I'll, I'll tell this creepy part of it. Um, so at some point, his wife brings him something to drink. And, and initially it looks like orange soda, right? And I start looking at it more closely and it's kind of like bubbling furiously like some mad scientist potion. <laughs> and I'm like, so I asked him, you know, well, what's that? And he explained it was indeed orange soda, but it was combined with food-grade hydrogen peroxide. And I was like, well, why? And he explained it was a part of what he called, and it's known beyond him, chelation. Uh, and they believe that you can ingest certain things and it'll suck the poisons out of your body and take them out. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, I couldn't believe it. It was, and then, and then his wife brought me one. <laughs> Did you drink it? No. I pretended to, but I didn't. Well, Derry, over and over again, you've been remarkable at getting suspects and their family yeah. members, long-lost witnesses to open up to you, something your newsroom colleagues marvel at. Why do you think this works for you? Well, I think I'm the opposite of Mike Wallace, you know, huh. the 60 Minutes guy, you know, comes in, you know, guns blazing. I, um, Especially in those days, I look like Opie, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, uh, you know, harmless and whatever. And, and, and I'm not going in there with guns blazing. I'm going in there to listen and, and to question them and to kind of – I wanted to understand what made him a racist, you know. And, um, and so we got done. He insisted it was dark, and he insisted on walking me out to the car. And I'm like, really? That's okay. You know, I, I don't think I can find my way. So he walks me out to the car and gets me out to the car and says, if you write positive things about white Caucasian Christians, God will bless you. If you write negative things about white Caucasian Christians, God will punish you. If God does not punish you directly, several individuals will do it for him. Mm. And and his wife made me a sandwich. <laughs> I think you can guess what I did with the sandwich. <laughs> My goodness. Well, okay, so that's not the only risk. You could have been jailed for reading these Mississippi sovereignty yeah, reports. It almost almost happened, actually. Well, but but the, you got threats from Beckwith. You know, you started checking under the hood of your car for bombs. Yeah, you were yeah. warned after some of these convictions to vary your roots by your local sheriff and your wife, as we heard, was certainly terrified. So why? Why did you keep pursuing these cases? Well, I, I, I felt it was, you know, justice hadn't been done and justice needed to be done. It was such a it, it's always stuck in my craw when injustice, you know, injustices take place. And I think this was kind of the height of injustice because it wasn't just the fact that these guys got away with murder, these Klansmen got away with murder. It was the fact that everybody knew they got away with murder. Hmm. Yeah. In fact, you say, you know, I've heard of people getting away with murder, but not 20 men at the same time. Exactly.
My guest is Jerry Mitchell. His work as reporter for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi, helped revive civil rights era cold cases and put four Klansmen behind bars. Tonight, he'll be talking about his new book about those cases, Race Against Time, at the Carter Presidential Library with Ernie Suggs of the AJC. I want to get back to the Evers case because there, there are so many little things that you get to. You track a tip. You figure out where the 30-odd six suspected to have killed Evers was kept. You get a tip that pokes holes in Beckwith's alibi, and you check that out. And you get a transcript of the earlier trials from Medgar Evers' widow, Murley. Right. But still, even despite that, the prospects for bringing that case to trial or reopening that look dim. How did the courts decide to issue this indictment? Well, just one piece after another. And and by the time you got to the grand jury, I think you had either five or six witnesses who said, I think it was five, that said Beckwith bragged to them about killing Medgar Evers. So you had that. You had the testimony from the transcript. Uh, the two police officers, I went and interviewed them. They had given Beckwith his alibi which was highly suspicious because he wasn't arrested for like 10 days until 10 days later. So they claimed they saw him at a very specific time, like one Oh five in the morning at a gas station. He was pumping gas in his car. It, it was just, it was totally obviously made up because they didn't connect it to anything. So i like, he wasn't doing anything odd or weird or anything that would make it memorable. It was so interesting because so many of the witnesses were no longer living. They, right. in court, used the trial transcripts to actually reenact the witness statements. They did. They what did was a great it, job. It sounds surreal almost. What was that like? It was really almost like an acting job, and it really was. I know that one of the witnesses did such a good job. He played kind of the honorary uh, cab driver hmm. that was a witness. <laughs> And uh, he and another cab driver identified Byron D. Lebeck with as coming to them on the Wednesday before the assassination or a week before the assassination. And basically, they were he Beckwith was looking for where Meg Revers lived is what he was looking for, mm -hmm. trying to get directions there. And it was this whole long, bizarre thing about him going back into the telephone directory. He's trying to find where Meg Revers lived. And so they identified Beckwith, both the cab drivers identified Beckwith as the one asking for these directions. Uh, the cab driver was kind of ornery. And so when he testified in the transcript, the 64 transcript, it said there was laughter. Like he says, uh, you know, because he wouldn't talk to the defense. He says, well, I don't talk to both sides or something like that. And everybody laughs. And uh, you, you could see it. It literally happened again. Like when when the when the trial testimony it wasn't you know because they did such a good job doing it it seemed real you know mm -hmm. what i mean mm -hmm. and 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 so the audience laughed again even though it was even though it was being you know the transcript was being read what was that experience for you seeing these cases come to trial after the work that you'd done to get them there the first go round i mean with the with the mega revers case i was just relieved because I didn't realize, I kind of felt like I was kind of carrying this burden. And it was every day it was up and down, you know what I mean, depending on what happened. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then once I kind of got past that, I realized I've got to distance myself a little bit from this. And really my focus became the families. And so I just very grateful to see these families finally find some semblance of justice 
after all these decades. And uh, and that's been the real reward of, of what I've done has been getting to know these families, I think. And there are just some, you know, unbelievable moments of redemption. These aging men who may have been white supremacists and involved in these cases, maybe at the end of their life, coming to another place. Can, can you Anything come to mind, a story that could illustrate sure, that? Sure, sure. Uh, Billeroy Pitts was involved in the killing of Vernon Damer, dropped his gun, got caught, plead guilty to murder, uh, got a life sentence for that, and, and plead guilty to federal charges, got time for that. But he turned state's evidence uh, and testified against Sam Bowers in the 90, 1998 trial, and Sam Bowers was convicted. After that, there was a hearing months later in which Billeroy Pitts testified, just as he, you know, had testified against Bowers. And when he got done, he walked to the back of the courtroom and he ran into the widow of Vernon Damer, Ellie Damer. And he apologized to Mrs. Damer and asked her to forgive him for killing her husband. Mm. And she forgave him. And she began to cry. And he began to cry. What do you think moved him? He said he, he, he kept hearing a man's voice crying out from the flames. You know, the clan had set the house on fire. And, um, it, just, it just kept it haunting him. Just another powerful scene from Jerry Mitchell's book, Race Against Time. Uh, but so for you, you're invested in these cases. You know, sure. So obviously, you know, you're on the right side of history. But was there ever any pushback from your editors about, you know, carrying forward a case or advocating for a result? Oh, advocating. I, I don't think I, I don't think we crossed that line. I, I think we reported what happened and. And certainly, you know, we discovered new evidence in, in a number of these cases. And so that's a legitimate news story. And I think um, our job, I had a friend of mine who's an investigative reporter. He had a button that says, I just catch them. I don't fry them. And I like that. Hey, yeah, that's a good description of what we do. We, we expose it. You know. A rather grisly one, too. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so well, as with the families... The legacy of white supremacy is running in parallel with the present. You know, the abject violence is fresh in the mind of surviving family members, sometimes witnesses in the case mm -hmm. of the Evers family. But also the legacy of white supremacy in, you know, of these one-time segregationist strongholds in the citizens of that time. Yes. So, so how does that work out? You know, where were they? Where were the residents of Neshoba County and as these trials were going forward? And you, you know, you're resurrecting the past on some level, but you're also dealing with the present. I'm, I'm interested to hear your observations of that. Well, I mean, uh, some people were unhappy about <laughs> about the resurrection of these cases. That's for sure. Uh, I heard from them, uh, Klansmen or, or just local townspeople, you know. Um, and so you would hear that from people and, and there was pushback from that. I certainly had one editor that wasn't particularly excited about me doing these stories. And the thread of that runs through. I mean, you'd meet people like Bobby DeLauder, who had a relative who was involved in passing the legislation uh, that created the Sovereignty Commission. So it's it's very fascinating. I mean, 
you know, Miss, you know, you always talk about six degrees of separation, but in Mississippi, I think it's about one and a half. You know, everybody's related to everybody or knows everybody. So, so you were asked many times, why do you keep writing about the past? Why don't you stop bringing up the past? Exactly. What's your answer? Well, you know, I, I, I know uh, I would have people, uh, the similar question I would get would be, uh, why don't you leave these old guys alone? Mm-hmm. And um, they'd see the footage or the pictures or whatever. And I'd say, look, these are young killers that just happen to get old. Mm. Well, this book is called Race Against Time. Are how many of these cases are still unsolved or people not brought to trial who are still living? There are very few that I know of that are the murder suspects, you know, that could you know, be prosecuted again, or if they are alive, unfortunately, most or all the witnesses are dead. So mm-hmm. that's the unfortunate part. I, I think if there had been more of a concerted effort nationally, like came in later, if that had, if that effort had happened like 20 years earlier, I think there would have been a lot, a lot more cases. Right. So now you mentioned earlier a resurgence in racial violence, certainly in the United States right now. You are a founder of the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. Right. So, so I'm going to ask you a question that your newsroom colleagues asked you after case after case was tried. What's next, Jerry, or who's next? <laughs> well, that's this is what I'm up to. I, um, you know, newsrooms are are shrinking and vanishing across the United States and especially here in Mississippi. And that's why we formed the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. We believe that uh, investigative reporting can make a difference and uh, can even bring change, positive change to community. And so we believe in that and we want that to be available. So we have we basically are investigative you know, involved in investigative reporting. We've got a team of folks, there are three of us now, and plus 10 college students. And so we're we're beginning to look at things like life sentencing for juveniles. Uh, we're looking at a cold case, uh, not from the civil rights movement, but um, but a little bit more recent, uh, and, and things like that. And I've been investigating prisons for the past year in Mississippi. Basically, they've blown up since. Um, So, you know, we want to continue to make a difference. And those stories are running in literally almost every major newspaper in Mississippi. It's it's stories they desperately need and and desperately want to run. So what are contemporary readers looking at these cold cases that seem like they were literally decades ago? Yeah. What do you you think they're going to take from these historic investigations? Well, one of the early reactions I've gotten from people – uh, who've read the book is I never knew all that happened. And I, I think if if my book can do that, I, I, I think it's it served its purpose in the sense of we sometimes don't really know our history. And I really do believe the saying that if we don't know our history, we're condemned to repeat it. And so I just think that there's a, a lot of just a lack of knowledge of of kind of this history. I, I on Facebook and Twitter I post every day kind of today in civil rights history. And it's amazing how many people come back to me, uh, both white and African American, and say, 
I never knew this. I never knew this happened. I never knew about this story. And so I hope that serve, you know, the book helps to serve that purpose of, of filling in gaps for people that, that aren't aware of our history. And we, and we need to know it. And, and because our history very much affects what's happening right this second. Jerry Mitchell, a great pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Jerry Mitchell, he won a MacArthur Genius Grant for his work as an investigative reporter for the Clarion Ledger in Jackson, Mississippi. His work helped put Klansmen behind bars from reviving civil rights cold cases. He's the founder of the Mississippi Center for Investigative Reporting. And his new book about how that all happened is called Race Against Time. A reporter reopens the unsolved murder cases of the civil rights era. We're going to leave you with the freedom singers. They laid poor Medgar Evers in his grave. Jerry will be at the Carter Presidential Library tonight talking about his book. There's more information at gpbnews.org. Racial terrorism was shockingly common in the years between Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement. Researchers count some 4,400 African Americans brutally killed in those years. The film Always in Season explores that historical context while following the investigation of a young black man's death in 2014. It looked like, honestly, it looked like it was a display, like it was a message, like it was a back-in-the-day lynching. Like, that's what it, that's how it made me feel. The film's director, Jacqueline Olive, will be in GPB in Atlanta next week for a screening of Always in Season, which is narrated by Danny Glover and won a special jury prize at the 2019 Sundance Film Festival. It's been touring the country and inspiring powerful discussions across racial lines. One of the most disturbing legacies of lynching is generational trauma within the black and white communities. And yet very different reactions to the stories in the two different communities. Both communities were covered in a shroud of silence. Blacks out of fear, whites out of shame, I think and fear also. And that silence was never lifted. And so people are acting out in the context of that passed on relationship and they don't know what's at the heart of it. And there are all these institutions that need to come clean about this history. This is true of the legal community. It's true of journalism. It's true across the board. Communities for themselves have to come together and talk about what they think would repair the harm. But if together we face that history, it leads to an opening for dialogue. It leads to an opening for reconciliation. On Tuesday of next week, I'll host a discussion with Jacqueline Olive and a panel of people working for racial justice and reconciliation here in Georgia. The reception and screening start at 6 on Tuesday, February 11th. It is a free event, but you have to sign up. Details at gpbnews.org slash community. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Nyswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Julia Sanders. Executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Press. 
Westcott. You can keep up with what we're doing on Twitter at OST Talk or be in touch with us and other listeners on our Facebook group, GPB Radio's On Second Thought. Thanks so much for spending some of your listening time with us. Thank you.